That's how I spent my vacation last week. <laughs> Actually, what you've just seen hardly scratches the surface of the grueling grind endured by volunteers for U.S. Army Ranger School. If they pass the test, they get their Ranger tag. The coveted designation only goes to about 20% of those who enlist to be Rangers. This is Lieutenant Bryce Keller Nye. Yeah, he's our grandson. He graduated last December from Fort Benning, Georgia. He's currently training at Fort Drum, New York and he'll be leading a team of soldiers on deployment to Afghanistan, first of next year. He's also just been married. Needless to say, he exemplifies the Ranger creed as an elite soldier, ready to meet the enemies of our country. If you don't know anything about Ranger training, Here's a brief description of the course. It's 61 days in length with an average of 20 plus hours a day of activity, seven days a week. There are three phases. The Benning phase, which is, takes place at Camp Rogers and Camp Darby at Fort Benning, Georgia. Then there's the mountain phase conducted at Camp Frank Merrill in Dahlonega, or if you're from Georgia, it may be Dahlonega, or it may be pronounced some other way. And the Florida phase, which gets into a lot of swamp and water training, conducted at Camp James E. Rudder at Elgin Air Force Base in Florida. The trainees really endure lots of field testing to test their strength, their fatigue, their hunger, the necessity for quick sound decisions under stress. And that takes place primarily at night. Most of us sleep at night. If two MREs, that's meals ready to eat, are sufficient for a 24-hour day with all that activity, you have constant physical stress coupled with two hours, even less, of sleep in a 24-hour period, and it taxes the strongest. Some are dismissed, some fail the test, and some just quit. When I said that 20% of those who enter that school actually complete ranger school, you need to know that the purpose of the instructors is to weed out those who aren't going to stick. They want the best of the best. Rice acknowledged when his buddies were all dropping out around him and this happened in the mountain phase with cold temperatures and rain and having to repel up sheer rock cliffs and other activities. 
He had to physically hold his arm down to keep from volunteering to quit because he was remembering those who prayed for him and supported him. The final test, you saw a little snippet of it in that video, is a 10-hour forced timed march. The RI, the ranger instructor, behind the volunteers, saying, pick it up, ranger. Don't lag behind. Move it. I'm not taking the time to imply praise to our grandson. I'm taking this time to acknowledge the preparation, the determination, and dedication and commitment it takes for men and women to qualify to be known as a U.S. Army Ranger and preserve our freedom. Many months ago when I first really got into the weeds of seeing what's available, and you can Google U.S. Army Ranger School and you can see up to 45 minutes of really detailed video on Ranger training. I didn't think I'd take that much time this morning. Um, Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.3, a verse that I memorized with Brethren Boys Club years and years ago. I can barely remember it. It's been so long ago. Thou therefore, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, endure hardship. The ESV says it, Timothy, my son in the Lord, you are to share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. As I observed Ranger School closely, I had this call from the Lord to prepare one day when I had the opportunity to apply what I observed to Ephesians chapter 6. I observed closely how much hardness have I endured for the cause of Christ. What about you? Have you enlisted in his army? And how much hardness have you endured? Have we trained for the battle? And that battle is physic, not physical, but spiritual. It takes serious preparation. Hold that thought as backdrop and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And I want to read these 11 verses, 10 through 20. If you have the Bible there or get one in front of you, follow with me, please. This is God's word, Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able 
to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to preach and speak. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, we ask you to open our eyes of understanding to meet the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We know they are real. We pray that you will give us the commitment and the determination to prepare for the battle. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I have to tell you that I believe that this week I have faced that spiritual battle with evil forces. Yesterday, Nancy and I went to a commitment about a little over an hour from here, which I had made, and it's clear to me now that the way in which that commitment was made and kept was at the Lord's direction. I'm not going to tell you the details of it or what it was, but we were in the presence of Satan and his angels. It was a dark time yesterday afternoon. They were real. I prayed during that event that the Lord would encircle both Nancy and me with his protection. I wasn't there in a position to speak. I was there because the Lord wanted to reveal to me that this is real. But let me tell you, our commander, Jesus Christ, has already won the victory. But the enemy is not willing to acknowledge defeat. On a different battlefield than army rangers or navy seals or other special forces, like Joshua, we are called to be strong and courageous. As I observed the hardship military recruits face in training, to say nothing of what they face in actual combat or war, 
on land, sea, or in the air. And now we have the beginnings of a space force. Application to our spiritual warfare cannot be ignored. So take a moment to review what Paul said in this letter to the Ephesians. I'm going to go back to the first chapter. I'm not going to read major portions of it, but I just want to pick out certain themes that Paul addresses. In Ephesians 1.3, at the start, he says, God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. This is while we're in this world. In chapter 2, if you scan through the first 10 verses, you see he talks about what we once were, following the course of this world, <clears throat> the prince of the power of the air. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, made us alive together with Christ and saved us by grace through faith. Stay with me now. Chapter 3 gets even better. In what he calls the mystery of Christ, as you scan through this chapter, a mystery in the scripture is a revelation of something never previously known. And this mystery is that Gentiles, that is sinners, non-Jews, are fellow heirs with the Jews of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 10 explains the mystery, if you look at that. The purpose of our inheritance is so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There's that same phrase again. Move into chapter 4. Therefore, says Paul, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called. Verse 2 emphasizes how our walk is motivated by and fulfilled by love. We've put off the old self. Verse 24 says... Put on the new self, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It changes who we are and how we live as members one of another. Verse 25, it's a new way of living, obviously, in this world. And the same theme extends into chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. Walking in the scripture is living your life, how you live. Walk in love as children of light. Scan verse 2. You see, it's a life of sacrifice to God. Now, through the balance of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, we have and learn how this impacts human hearts and the family of God in home and hearth. It addresses fathers, husbands, 
wives, mothers, children, servants, or if you were to use the real meaning of that word, it's slaves, and masters, those who have people under them. So we are to be wise, not foolish, verse 17, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we come again to Ephesians 6.10, finally. With all that as prologue, the beloved late pastor of Moody Church, his name was Harry A. Ironside, wrote concerning this transition, Ephesians 6.10. He says, finally we move from home to battlefield. I kind of like that designation. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We are to live daily, continuously, to receive his strength. It is strength we do not have. The Greek, Greek verb tense signifies ongoing action. It's continuously strengthening yourself. Just as we are clothed in his righteousness, righteousness is not our own, it is his righteousness. We are only strong in his power. We sang about being strong, but we are strong in the power of the Lord. You know that many mainline churches have taken onward Christian soldiers out of their hymnal and other hymns like the Battle Hymn of the Republic or the Banner of the Cross or anything that has a, an even oblique reference to things military. They've taken it out of their hymnals. They say we're a people of peace, not of war. And while that is true, we have verse 11. What do you make of this verse in chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 11? Put on the whole armor of God. What in the world is armor for? Except for battle. In Romans 13, Paul advised Christians to put on the armor of light. We'll see in a moment that that's pretty apropos as we meet cosmic powers of the darkness. So what kind of war should we prepare for? Where is it to be fought? What is our strategy? What tactics will we use? The answer is that we have to prepare, and it's found here in our text the last half of Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. As Nancy and I met him yesterday, Satan is our enemy. Paul added in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against 
flesh and blood. Would you please turn and look at the person on either side of you? Look at the person in front of you. And look at the person behind you. No one sitting around you. No one anywhere is your enemy. Not a person. Never think of any person that way. Satan is our enemy. Turn back in your Bible a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I need to read several verses which add to the instructions we have, we're going to see from Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm beginning with verse 3. This clarifies the battlefield. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. What is flesh but humankind? People. We're in this world. It's a physical world. It's not a physical war. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete." Now turn back to Ephesians chapter 6. Notice verse 12. Our fight is against rulers, one. Two, against the authorities. Three, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Four, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. Now that's at least the third time in Ephesians that heavenly places forms the arena. We are seated there, Paul says, and we face the spiritual forces of wickedness and evil there. The verses I read in 2 Corinthians 10 confirmed that the battle is waged in the mind and the heart of the believer who is engaging spiritual forces in heavenly places. It's not physical. Colossians 2.15 says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Those are the evil authorities and rulers in the heavenly places. By triumphing over them in him. Now we know that Satan is a crafty, devious, foxy, deceitful, shrewd, subtle enemy. He's got all the tools. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 tells us he can disguise himself as an angel 
of light. Never underestimate your adversary. I mentioned Joshua earlier. When he was leading the children of Israel into the promised land to conquer it, defeating the inhabitants of that land, it's an earthly physical war as a picture of what our spiritual warfare is like. On one occasion, Joshua failed to ask the Lord for wisdom. It's found in Joshua 9. If you'd like to turn to that chapter, I'm only going to read a couple of three verses. Your job will be to figure out how it all ended. But here's how it began. God said to destroy the inhabitants of the land, including women and children, cattle, their idols, to make no covenants or treaties with those in the land. Here is Joshua chapter 9, verse 3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, you'll remember that, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. You get the picture? They simply lied, presented themselves what they were not. They said, oh, we're from a far country. They sought a covenant, and they got it from Joshua. And you can read the rest of it for yourself in the balance of the chapter. But when we go into spiritual battle in human strength without calling upon the might and power of God, Satan has an advantage over us like these Gibeonites gained over Joshua. John, 1 John 4, 4 promises us, however, that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Satan has power, but it's limited. Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Believe it and live that truth. So again, back in Ephesians 6, now verse 13, Paul says once again, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. We're not called to move forward, we're called to stand with the armor protecting us. Don't miss this. He says several times the whole armor. You don't want to miss certain parts. You need the whole armor of God. Can you imagine a ranger candidate in ranger school telling his unit commander, sir, I don't think I need this helmet. And 
It's too heavy to carry in my rucksack, and I don't think I need this bayonet either. I just need to lighten the load a little bit so that I can make it up this cliff. One thing Bryce told us about ranger school, did you see that one soldier in the video pick up another and carry him? Bryce had to do that with his rucksack, which is really basically a backpack, weighing close to 100 pounds. 100-pound rucksack, a soldier, and he had to carry him out as if he were wounded. We're clothed in the righteousness of God in Christ. When facing the foe, we stand firm in the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's not our own strength. We stand clad in the whole armor of God. Look at verse 14. Having fastened on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness. Truth is from God. Jesus said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We meet the assaults from the powers of darkness with God's truth, the belt of truth, his word. What you and I think about things is not important. What does God say about things? His word is truth. Ephesians 5, 6 says, let no one deceive you with empty words. A lot of people in our age, in the age of Facebook and Snapchat and whatever else people get on, they say a lot of words. God's word is truth. Fasten that belt of truth around you. The breastplate of righteousness covers the heart. When one of our other grandsons was in the hospital and he's very thin and he had this lung problem, you could literally see him. He had telemetry on his chest and he didn't have a shirt on. You could see his heart pumping in his chest. I'd never seen that before because he was so thin. The breastplate Guard your heart so that you may live a clean, holy life free from hidden sin. The life and work of Christ was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 59. You need not turn to it. Verse 17 reads this way. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. God's own son put on the armor of God. How much more urgently do you and I need it? Now in verse 15, we are told to put shoes on our feet, which is readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's the good news the gospel, it must be seen in our lives. A popular Christian song from a number of decades ago 
had a refrain like this. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's putting readiness with the gospel of peace on your feet. In verse 16, Paul introduces the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the fiery darts of the wicked. The shield of the Roman soldier was actually large enough to cover from head to toe. It was a big, huge shield. And it was large enough to protect the entire body from flaming arrows and darts that were sent their way. Faith is our way to God. It's a shield of faith. It's our shield. To quote Ironside again, he said, it's not what you believe, but how you believe. It's by grace that we're saved, through faith, not of ourselves, lest we boast. The helmet of salvation, in verse 17, provides protection for the head, the mind, the intellect. Even a child can understand, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The final two pieces are also found in verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I have to... uh, point out that the word which we normally think of in the Greek as logos, that's in John, the opening of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, that's logos. That's not the word here for the word of God. The word of God here in the Greek is rhema. It's anglicized, again, transliterated from what I mentioned last week. It's anglicized as rhema, the sayings of God. It's what did God say? Jesus used that word in his temptation in the wilderness when Satan attacked him. He said, it is written, here is rhema, the word of God. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. God's word that is written, specific quotations from God's word, rebuke the tempter and rebuff the temptation. And at the end, Satan left him because he could not prevail against Ramah. The word, the sayings of God. So the sword of the Spirit is the sayings of God. It's the only offensive weapon we have. Everything else is defensive for us to stand. But you can speak the sayings of God when needed. And the Holy Spirit will give you 
answers as he promised, Jesus promised his disciples when he sent them out two by two. He said, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. So, when you've put on the whole armor of God, you're prepared, ready, and able to meet spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. The complete armor of God, the belt, the breastplate, shoes, shield, helmet, sword, all picture our spiritual resources in Christ. They correspond to truth, to righteousness, to the gospel, to faith, salvation, and the word of God. There's one more thing, and we cannot overlook it. It's what I discovered anew yesterday. It's specifically not a part of the armor of God, but in verse 18, look at Paul's statement, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, I've emphasized the word all because its repetition suggests urgency. Prayer has urgency. It could read praying at all times, with all prayer, with all perseverance, for all the saints. And I confess, it's easy to pray without ceasing, as the Scripture tells us, when times are tough, you know, when you get that diagnosis of serious illness, or you lose your job, or you face grave marital trials, even death, it's kind of easy to be in prayer constantly, isn't it? But when the sun's shining and things are going swimmingly and we are just feeling blessed, sometimes we forget about prayer. It's those times that the pilots refer to as C-A-V-U. That's an acrostic, C-A-V-U. Sealing and vision unlimited. Can you see that when you're flying a plane? You can see forever. And that's when prayer gets stuffed way up high on a shelf, nearly out of reach. Paul says pray at all times, all prayer, all perseverance, all the saints. James said to pray like Elijah, pray fervently. The fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, he says. This is what David said in Psalm 66, verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. He knew his own sin and he wept in bitter repentance as recorded in Psalm 51 when Nathan the prophet confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. Jot down Psalm 51. Take the time to soak in that prayer 
of confession and repentance. I had an exchange on uh, messages on my phone with Pastor Tim last night. And I told him in the same cryptic note that I told you about our experience yesterday. And I said, we met Satan and his demons. Pray in the spirit for me and for the church tomorrow. He said he would, absolutely. Supplication in the spirit is prayer in accordance with the mind of the Holy Spirit of God. No one who is unsaved or not born of God can pray in the Spirit except to pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The carnal, backslidden believer's prayer, apart from repentance, cannot be in the Spirit. Supplication. That word connotes to implore, to beseech, to beg, to crave in the Spirit is not possible if I harbor a grudge against my brother. I cannot pray in the Spirit without forgiving another if I hold bitterness or malice toward anyone or covet what belongs to another person. And you can go on and on with what those hidden sins may be. We kind of tuck them deep in our heart and pretend to ignore them. Perseverance reminds me of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Most everyone who preaches on that passage from the Gospels will tell you that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood coming through his pores. He was in such deep, troubled agony in the spirit. Read the whole account in Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46. If you can remember six, you've got it all. Two, two, three, four. Matthew 26, 36, 46. To his disciples who couldn't stay awake, he came back and said to them, Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And watch this. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Isn't that why we have the armor of God? Our battle is not physical. The flesh doesn't do any good. You can't pump iron long enough to build up the strength to meet Satan. But you put on the whole armor of God and you're ready. There's yet one more prayer that Paul talks about, and that's for all the saints. He goes on to ask him to pray for him and his ministry, but is your prayer worldwide or would it be like this? God bless me, my wife, our son John, and his wife. These four and no more. Sometimes that's our prayer. It's just focused on a little tight-knit group of people we love or know. Even for the church, maybe it goes to 40 and no more. 
I don't know. But how many times do we pray for every name on our prayer concerns list? I know they're there every week. How many times do you ask the Lord to build up the pastor's courage and strength? When have you remembered to ask the Lord to bless some unknown evangelist? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you pray that truth of John 3.16 to be heard and received with joy in Mexico? Or how about Kenya, Afghanistan, Nepal, Pakistan, Iran, North Korea, the Philippines, China, Waynesboro? That is how you pray for all the saints and for all those who would be saints by the grace of God who may have yet to hear and receive the gospel. As the band comes up, we're going to sing a call to rise for a victory march. As soldiers of the cross, we have to be on mission. We're to train for and equip ourselves for that mission and carry it out even in the face of mental, physical, or emotional stress. That's what I believe Paul meant when he told Timothy, share in suffering Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. My tolerance for suffering and yours is the measure of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who promised that he is able to do abundantly more than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Pray with me. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, power, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.